Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you in this place, and we pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds. God, we have been taught, we've been discipled, we've been trained to be consumers our entire lives. Without even realizing this is a filter that we live, we walk around in, and that without realizing that we have just expended everything that we have in our lives on stuff that we don't need or stuff that doesn't bring us happiness. I pray, Lord, that as we look this morning uh, at what a life of generosity looks like, what a life of, of giving away just every aspect of ourselves, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, speak to us, you would teach us, that you would help us to grow in the areas we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Roger. I am the teaching pastor here of Uptown Community Church. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, we want to say welcome and thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue on a series that we started a few weeks back called Sacred Rhythms. And um, we'll kind of unpack what that means, but let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week with this was this idea of prayer. And the whole concept for me about prayer was this, uh, this, the word consciousness, right? Being aware being awake, just, just re- reminding ourselves of God's presence. Remember I said to you last week that prayer was the, uh, the, the bringing of God's presence in our context, whether it's in school, whether it's at work, whether it's home, wherever we find ourselves when we pray that we are inviting God's presence into our surroundings, into our, into our time. And so we look at this idea of prayer, and I said that prayer is the intersection of the natural and the supernatural. And what I mean by that is that if you were in the grocery store, if you were in the, on the bus, if you were wherever you are, when you pray, that moment, that place, that, 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 that presence you are, it becomes sacred because we are becoming aware of God's presence and we are having an active conversation with our creator. And so the idea of prayer wasn't about this is how you should pray and we did talk about that and I did reference you to our wireless series if you were looking for that, but it was more about saying, I just want you to remember that God is with you and that he walks with you. We uh, close by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. And, um, oh yeah, I forgot about this one. We also talked about uh, in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses says this most incredible statement. Remember, Moses is saying this moment, he's saying this, 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 uh, he's having this conversation with God in the middle of the desert. Imagine being in the desert with about 100,000 people and trying to figure out, find water, trying to find food, trying to find accommodations. Like, you go on a half-hour car, car ride, and people are like, are we there yet? I need to go to the bathroom. Can we stop for coffee? I need to hydrate. We all carry around these big bottles of water around with us wherever we go because we just, we're afraid that we're just going to dehydrate and, and you know, uh, on the way to the grocery store or whatever that would be, right? Moses says to God, because the Israelites had just done the most dumb thing they've ever done, that Moses comes down from the mountain, and, they, and, and Moses finds him creating this golden calf to worship. And God's, of course, he's ticked. He's like, okay, what more do I need to do? I gave, you, I gave the Egyptians a 10 plagues that showed you my power. I brought you through the water. You're right, like I, I've done what you need to do. And then yet, in this moment, Moses goes away for a couple of days, and you do this. But Moses says this to God. He says, then Moses said, if you do, do not personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you do not go with us? For your presence amongst us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. What sets you apart isn't how good you are, isn't how much you know the Bible. It doesn't, like, these are the things that are important, of course. But what will set you aside from everything else that's going on in this world is God's presence in your life. And prayer 
activates, and I don't mean activates like as if God's not there, but it activates our understanding. It reminds us that God is there. And we wrapped up by looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, where Paul uses this great statement. He says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give light. Right? And we said that, you know, Paul uses this, I think, kind of tongue-in-cheek, because the same light of Jesus blinded him on the road to Damascus, right? And he says in verse 15 to 17, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evils day. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. That's what we talked about last week, and this week we're going to kind of go a different direction. Um, I came across this article about generosity, and what was so interesting about it, uh, the title of it, and I couldn't find out who wrote it. It was just one of the blog posts on this uh, website about uh, minimalism and, and faith. Um, if you've heard about this movement about minimalism, it's this interesting concept where people your age and, and different ages, different uh, stages of life, are realizing that we have been on this treadmill of consumerism. We need to purchase, we need to buy, we need to, we need to consume, we need to have more things in our lives. And this group of people are kind of awakening, going, wait a minute, you know, like, uh, I have so much stuff that I don't even know where all this stuff is. I love what George Carlin, the, the comedian, used to say, he says, you know, you have stuff and you buy a bigger place to hold more stuff, not because you need more living space, you just need more place to hold all your stuff. Right? We've become consumers, and as Christ followers, this is a problem because it's not about the consumerism part of it, but it's a part about how we, how we let it affect our lives. And so this article was on this website, and I couldn't find out who wrote it, so apologies, but I thought what it had to say was interesting. It says this, uh, most of us are good at random acts of giving. We can be easily persuaded, inspired, or even guilted into doing something to meet a particular need in the moment. Often there is some sort of sales pitch involved, and we think, wow, maybe I should give to that. But he goes on to say this, but what if the act of giving and a lifestyle of generosity are two different things? See, our culture's gotten really good by manipulating us, by guilting us to do things. Right? They'll show a, a, a child in an impoverished place. They'll show a, a, a calamity in a part of the world. They'll show somebody in some sort of vulnerability. And in that moment, our emotions rise up, and we go, huh. Maybe I should do something. And so we say, okay, I'm going to help. Or if someone comes to you and says, I'm, I'm walking, I'm running, I'm doing this for this cause. You're like, okay, this seems like a good thing to do. I think I will do this. But what he says is kind of interesting. He says, but what if the act of giving and a lifestyle of generosity are two very different things? He goes on to say this. Um, you, uh, you see, actually being generous, cultivating a lifestyle of generosity requires a plan. It transcends inspiration and guilt. It requires us to decide ahead of time how much we will give and to what we will give. In other words, generosity can be defined as the premeditated, calculated, designated emancipation of personal financial assets. It's kind of a lot of words there, right? But what he's saying is that generosity, if it's, if it's impulse-driven, it doesn't actually become generosity anymore. It becomes impulse, and our impulses can be different things. As a matter of fact, if you look at uh, different organizations who, uh, who, are, who are in the charitable section, they're saying is there is this overload of people saying, okay, yes, we get asked all the time for stuff. And so now we have to find different ways of, excuse the language, of manipulating people in the moment to kind of give to these, these, these things. And so how do, we, how do we kind of create this? How do we think of a lifestyle of generosity? But as Christ followers, I think this is actually even more interesting because 
this was what Christianity in its earliest form was known for. It was known as a group of people who were generous in, in all aspects of life. Um, one of the things we have to talk when we talk about generosity is we have to first identify what false generosity looks like. And Jesus has this great teaching, and, and I love how uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel says it. Jesus says, you know what? Oftentimes people say, I'm generous because look what I did for my husband, my wife, my friends, my family members, my coworkers. And Jesus says something kind of interesting. He says, you know what? If you think that's what generosity is, then you have actually mistaken what generosity actually is. Now, look what he says in Luke's version of this same statement. He says, if you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who, good, who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And I love how it says in Matthew's gospel, even pagans do that. So what Jesus is saying is that whatever... We think about generosity. However we understand this idea of generosity, most of us think of generosity as what we do for people who are in our lives. Oftentimes, generosity can come from um, people who ha- have got a sickness, and they go, well, I've got something that's close to me, so therefore I, this, 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 this sickness, this thing actually has more meaning to me because somebody I love, somebody I care about is now suffering from it. And we say, well, that's generosity. Or we say, well, you know what? You know, I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But it's for people I know. It's for people I care about. Or there might be a, a, a possibility of reciprocity where people will do it back to me. And Jesus says, if that's your level of generosity, if that's how you think generosity is, he says, well, just so you know, there's nothing special, supernatural, incredible with that because even pagans can do that. Right? Even the worst person that you know will be generous to people they like. And Jesus says, that's not really what generosity is. That's not what a lifestyle of generosity actually looks like. And so how generous are we actually? So I had to go back. There's a, something called a giving report that uh, kind of gleans through the Stats Canada uh, statistics of, of Canadians and uh, kind of tells us a little bit how generous we actually are. So according to Statistics Canada, and of course I want to make sure this is Canadian, uh, for 2017, overall Canadians gave 1.5% or $456 per year. per year of their income to charity. $446 per year. Now, just so you know, this is actually different for people who are Christians, people who give to religious organizations, but I couldn't get uh, a a definite number. I couldn't couldn't reference it. People would use more like uh, kind of, I I think this, so I didn't put that down there. But basically they said that if you are a part of a religious organization, this number will increase by $300 to $400. And so we, we go, okay, so Christians are, are people who are religious, and that's not just Christians. That could be uh, Muslims, it could be Buddhists, it could be any other religious uh, people giving towards a religious uh, function. They, they will give a little bit more. But it, it goes from about 1.5% to, and this is my best estimate, so I just want to front end load that for you, about 2.2%. So what we find is that um, if we ask ourselves, how generous are we? We have to respond by saying, perhaps not as generous as we perhaps think. Right? We may think very highly of ourselves because of how we help those we love, but in general, we may not be as generous perhaps as we think. A couple other uh, uh, points of uh, data in this uh, uh, giving report says this. It is the top three income groups who have historically given the highest average donation amongst per family, but have had the greatest giving declines in average donations over the past 11 years. So what's interesting about this is that they've been able to track, okay, so the top three income brackets have traditionally given the most amount of money to charities. 
but what this what uh, this 2017 report you know kind of verified was is this top three percent of the group has actually had the sharpest decline in charitable giving. So charitable giving is down globally. It's not just you know in Canada. It's just globally. Charitable giving is down. There was a time where people would thought that this is part of being uh, part of person society that you would just you would give and 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 all that. But what they're noticing is the top three um, um, financial groups have a huge decline over the last 11 years. What's also interesting is that the lower-income families give a higher percent of their total income. So, for example, when you see a celebrity go, well, you know, I believe in this cause, and I'm going to give $50,000. You'll go, yes, bravo, $50,000. But what if that $50,000 really only comes up to 0.02% of their actual income? Right? They're getting a lot of applause, and people are like, wow, $50,000, that's a lot of money. But the reality is it's not a lot of money to them. It's their, their version of $20 for us, right? And so what's interesting in what the, the giving report told us is that lower-income families, the lower brackets of, uh, of the giving brackets, actually give a higher percentage of their income. So why, for, for example, a higher-income bracket person may give, let's say, $10,000 a year towards charity. We go, okay, that's great. It's a large amount of money. A lower income bracket may only give $400, but percentage-wise, that actually may be a higher percentage of what they bring in income-wise. That's actually what's kind of interesting to me, that you know, those who are wealthy, those who are well-off, gave less percentage-wise than those perhaps that were struggling. I thought, huh, that's actually kind of, that's kind of interesting. So what we find from the giving report was is that um, we weren't as generous as we thought we were and that uh, there has been an overall decline in giving in Canada Charitable, nonprofit, whichever we want to look at it, over the last 20 years. To the point now where charities and charitable organizations are kind of fighting over the same dollars now. I guess for the most part, people say, well, you know, I only have X amount of money or I only want to kind of do it this way, and so uh, I'm going to choose this one. Right? And so what people don't realize is that there's a market within the charitable uh, organizations of, of donor relations and, and, and donor giving and development, and there's a whole bunch of different wording for that. But the money, the income is increased in these areas because it's harder and harder to get people to give money. And to, for the most part, a lot of these donor relations and, and development go for corporate uh, donations or grants or things like that because obviously it's more, do- it's more dollar amounts. But uh, they need to fund a lot of money into this area because people just aren't giving. Well, this morning, obviously, our second discipline that we want to look at is our second discipline is the habit of generosity, which I would define as the gracious giving of our time, talents, and treasures to God for his kingdom. Now, a couple of... Um, Weeks ago, Juliet said something from uh, the keyboard, and I thought it was so interesting. I, I, I think I might have mentioned to her because I felt like saying, did you hack my computer? Because I actually have this statement in my notes for uh, the teaching in a few weeks. It said this, what we give to God, we get back from God. Now, that may not be a life-changing, life-shifting uh, statement, but the thing is that's kind of interesting is that we believe this to be true in some areas of our lives, but we don't believe it to be true in other areas of our lives. So let's take an example, uh, and we'll use the example we had last week of prayer. I said to you last week that prayer is one of these pivotal uh, disciplines that is really about God's presence in your life, and the more you pray, the more you seek out God, the more you're aware of God's presence in your context, you will see a benefit to that. Right? And, and the benefit is, 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 is wide and varied. And, and at UCC, we're very clear, we don't do outcome-based prayers. 
If God does this, then this. You know, if God answers my prayer, then I will praise him. If God gives me a girlfriend, boyfriend, then I will believe he's true. If, you know, God grows my hair back, then, you know, whatever it would be, whatever the requests are, we don't talk about outcome-based giving or outcome-based prayers here at UCC because we know quite clearly that God has maybe other ideas or other ways of looking at at, at reality. And so we pray not to tell God something he already knows because he does, but we pray to remind ourselves that God is with us. And that transformative, uh, transformative conversation is what prayer is all about. We see this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. Which brings up a very interesting word, this word reward. There is this concept within the Bible, especially in the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament... Reward is very easy because if you brought this sacrifice, if you did this, then the rewards of God and the Old Testament concept was quite clear. In the New Testament, it's a little bit different. Now, this word reward, especially in the Greek usage in in Matthew chapter 6, occurs about 40 times in the New Testament, which gives it a significant um, uh, placement within the theology of the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. Um, when we look at reward, we see this in a whole bunch of different places. And we see it not just in the teachings of Jesus, but also in the letters. Now remember, at UCC, we say that we want to make sure that whatever we believe, however we understand the Bible, and it's kind of part of our conversation tonight at Theology Pub, is we want to look at how the Old Testament understands God. We want to look at how Jesus talks about God, and we want to look at how the Holy Spirit, the letters, talk about God, right? So Old Testament, Gospels, and letters, right? This is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So whenever I try to teach, I want to make sure that whatever I'm teaching kind of aligns up. Because we've also said that in the Old Testament, there are laws and things that are given but are not applicable to us today. And they're not applicable to us because we choose not to make them applicable. They're not applicable to us because God modifies them. The easiest example is dietary laws, right? In the Old Testament, there's lots of dietary laws, and this is what the Israelites are allowed to eat, and this is what they're not allowed to eat, right? But of course, in the book of Acts, Peter has this vision where God removes the dietary laws, right? Peter sees this sheet of all these animals, and God says, eat. And Peter's like, oh, no, no, you're not catching me this time again, God. Like, no, 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 I'm a good Jewish boy. No, I'm not going to eat any of those. And God says, well, guess what, Peter? Bacon's back on the table. Um, you know, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. In that moment, God removes dietary laws. We go, oh, okay. So that's why we as Gentiles, we as people under the new covenant go, hey, I like bacon and uh, I get to eat bacon and I have no problem with that. Why? Because God's removed it, right? The reason I'm saying this to you is because however we understand this idea of rewards, however we understand this, we have to make sure it kind of aligns with scripture, and so what we see here quite clearly is that this idea of reward is, is actually quite uh, prominent in the teaching. But how do we understand it, right? Because we have to have this caution. And the caution is this. God's rewards, rewards aren't a quid pro quo. Now, quid pro quo is a Latin phrase, which means um, quid pro quo is a Latin phrase that literally means something for something. The phrase usually indicates an exchange of goods or services of roughly equivalent value. So quid pro quo is, I'll help you move, but when I move, you better be there, right? Or quid pro quo is, you know, I will do this, but I expect it in return. And so when we talk about God's rewards, if we use that language for God's rewards, you are going to be very frustrated because that's not how the Bible deals with it. In understanding God's rewards, we must have a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly one. 
Now, one of the things I have to clarify here is at UCC, we do not believe in prosperity gospel. Now, prosperity gospel simply means if you give God $1, he'll give you back $5. I need a private jet, and I need a better car, and I need a bigger house, because that's how honors God. We don't roll that way. And the reason we don't roll that way is it's not biblical. So when we talk about God's rewards, look at uh, Luke chapter 12, because God helps us put it in context. Sell your possessions and give to to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be saved. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. All that we give, sacrifice, serve, and surrender is earthly refinement with heavenly implications. Now, the reason this is very important to point out is because people do talk about this. People do talk about, you know, if you give and this is what you get back. It's not quid pro quo. Right? Like, if you give $50 to whatever it would be, do not expect $100 or even $50 to come back to you. That's, that's completely unbiblical. And one of the things I hate about this concept is it's very much a Western white uh, theology. Because if you go to the continent of Africa, you go to the, you go to the Middle East, you go to China, underground church, you go to these places, this idea of prosperity doesn't even register to them. Because it's, it's completely a fabrication of theology in Western culture. And just, just wanted to throw it out there. Because as we talk about generosity, you're like, well, okay, pastor, how much do you want? What do I need to do to shut you up? <laughs> right? And my wife's been trying to figure that one out for a long time. So any things you can give to her towards her, you can just, she'll be appreciative towards that. But the point is simply this. Is that whenever I'm talking about this idea of generosity, I don't want you to think that I'm saying to you, this is what you have to do. Because we have to always, first and foremost, and one of the things we take very seriously here at UCC, is to try to understand the context of Scripture, right? However you understand the Bible, however you wrap your mind around that, we at UCC say, you know what? This book we believe to be divine. But it doesn't mean we understand all of it. It just simply means that this is what we believe to be a reflection of the character and nature of who God is. And because of that, we want to understand it as best as we're able to. It's like uh, the singer-songwriter, the late singer-songwriter Rich Mullins said, only God is right and everybody else is just guessing, right? And so we, we try to have humility in regards to our understanding of Scripture. But we want to be, make sure that we're clear where the Scripture is clear. And so just to be, just to make sure you, you hear me very clearly here, I am not preaching prosperity gospel. I'm not saying if you give God a dollar, he'll give you back five dollars, okay? However, the Bible does tell us that what we possess, what we do, how we understand our resources, it does seem to have heavily implications, which is also kind of an interesting concept. Um, Shane Claiborne, if you know Shane Claiborne, Shane Claiborne is, uh, he is an activist in the States and his, has a very important voice and a, and a very important corrective for the church. Shane Claiborne said this, and I, and I really kind of think that he's absolutely correct on this. He says this, if you ask most people what Christians believe, they can tell you Christians believe that Jesus is God's son and that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you ask the average person how Christians live, they are struck silent. We have not shown the world another way of doing life. Christians pretty much live like everybody else. They just sprinkle in a little Jesus along the way. And I, I have to confess to you, that has actually has been um, my experience. And we've been talking a little bit about this. Remember that phrase we had in this last series? We have buildings full of Christians who don't resemble Jesus. Right? 
We are talking about transformation because transformation is the point of Christianity. Whenever you've experienced Jesus, and perhaps this morning you're here and like, I haven't even come to that point in life, and I, and I respect that completely. But if you have decided, if you've assented, if you've made the decision saying, you know what, this Jesus guy, this person, I'm going to follow, and, and I'm going to follow him imperfectly. I'm going to follow him in my own flesh, in my own brokenness, but I'm going to follow him, right? If that's the case, then from that moment, whatever that moment was, there should be this progressive beginning to change our worldview, how we understand life, how we understand our possessions, how we understand everything about this world should be, begin, be transformed. Not that we're perfect, not that we have it all figured out, but there should be a gradual change, right? And what Shane Glayborn is saying is I think is really important because I think this is what we've been talking about here at UCC is that we talk a lot about Jesus, but we don't actually confess this part where we actually start looking like Jesus, we don't actually start maybe reflecting who our Savior is. And the fact is, and I think this is true for most of us, we all want to be generous, but we are overextended in most areas of our lives. Right? Uh, there's, never, there's no worse feeling than getting your debit card out to pay for something at the grocery store or wherever it would be. And there's part of the back of your mind going, did that come out of my account or, you know, do it? And then the thing you never want to see on, on the thing is declined, right? That's, that is, and of course we all make, oh yeah, you know, just, I'm, uh, I had a check. I would like, we, 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 we try to, we try to justify to the cashier who could care less, right? We're like, ah, well, this never happens. I don't know what's going on here, right? Uh, the entire bank system must have collapsed, but you know, in that moment, I don't know what's going on here. The fact is it, you know, we all have that moment of like, ah, okay, right? Uh, the, but the thing is, though, is that that decline on the digital thing there, it's just a reminder that you are overextended. You are purchasing something or you're trying to purchase something, but you do not have the funds for it, right? But I think that's actually kind of a, that's kind of, that's kind of our lives if we think about it, right? If we look at our lives, we are kind of overextended in our finances. We're kind of overextended in our commitments, and we're overextended in our relationships. But the only area we don't seem to be overcommitted is in our faith. You know, like, like if this is your first time here, I am so sorry. Um, but, like, here's what I have to just kind of say to ourselves. Like, you know, like most people say, well, I'd love to get together. I'd love to do this. I'd love to have that. I'd love to be part of this. But I'm just so busy. Who isn't busy? I haven't met a not busy person. And if I meet a not busy person, I do not trust them. Because if you're not busy, then I don't, know what, I don't want to know what you're doing in your life because we're all busy, right? We are all busy. We are frantic. We go from school, we go from work, we go from relationships, we get home, got to make this, got to do that, got to make this homework, got to get this work done. And the next day we start it all over again. We're busy. But we're not really busy in the sense that we actually choose what we do with our time. We choose what we put in our, t- in our time, Right? Um, I was reading this really interesting article, and I was going to talk about this this morning, but it's just one of those things where it's like I don't have enough space for it. But it's like this idea of Netflix, right? Like Netflix decided that when they put their, sh- their series out, their shows out, you can binge the whole thing, right? And binging of television is a thing that has you know, happened before, back in the old days. I got to watch an episode of my show, and I would have to wait another week for the next episode, <laughs> How archaic is that, right? Now, I, I think I must be going to the office again for like the seventh time. And, you know, it's like I'm as pleased as punch with the office. I'm going to watch it again, and here we go, right? 
We have time. We just tend to use our time with whatever we want. And so people say to us, I'm busy. I wish we could provide a spreadsheet. You know, I just, I just would like to, I'd like to see some confirmation of how busy you are. Because according to your Instagram account, you're on there for 45 minutes. And you forward 34 memes to friends. And I don't know if that really makes you busy. It just makes you really preoccupied. I, I, I don't know, right? But we are busy in our time. We are busy with our finances. When you get your paycheck, whenever that may be, aren't you just amazed at, at, at a week later? Like, when you get your paycheck, you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go eat. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to pay that bill. But a week later, like, oh, when's my next paycheck? Right? I saw this really funny meme, sorry, on, on, uh, on Facebook, and it showed the cycle of a paycheck, right? It says, you know, payday. It says, you know, live like a king and buy everything. And then the halfway down, it's like, uh, wondering when those next things are going to come out of the account. And uh, here it's like, okay, praying that you have that, that $3 will get you through to payday and then payday again. That's the cycle of, of, pay, of paychecks, right? The fact is, is that we use our finances where we think we, think we want to. And one of the things that the giving report told us is that, you know, the average giving of the person is 1.5%, but the average uh, purchase of alcohol for a person, that's in the 4 to 5% on average per person, right? That's just, that's just, we choose what we want to use our finances for. And please hear me very clearly. It's your money. Do what you want with it. But it's not really living a lifestyle of generosity if you have nothing left for anyone else. It, it just isn't. And, and again, when, it's what Jesus says. You know, don't call yourself generous if you're buying dinner for your friends. Don't call yourself generous if you're taking someone out for coffee. Because there's, there's, no, there's nothing of generosity about that. Because what does Jesus say? Even the pagans do that. So if we're living our lives at that level of, of, of understanding of this world, it's not really generous anymore, right? And, and with our relationships, our talents, right? Like, yeah, you, you get that, right? But the thing is, though, it's because God is invisible, unseen, and whatever we do here has heavily implications. We just assume, right? We just go, well, you know, I have time. We'll figure it out, right? We'll have time. Um, Dr. Wellesley Wilmer and Martin Smith had this whole uh, book on this idea of possessions. I just want to kind of share something with you. Possessions are mentioned 2,172 times in Scripture, three times more than love, seven times more than prayer, and eight times more than belief. About 15% of God's world deals with possessions, treasures hidden in the field, pearls, talents, pounds, stables, and so on. Obviously, God understood that believers would find this a difficult area of their lives to turn over to him. Did you know that one-third of Jesus' teaching is about money? See, everyone likes Jesus because he's cute and cuddly, right? They don't like, like the Old Testament God, and the Holy Spirit's kind of weird and freaky, but we like Jesus. But we don't really like Jesus because we don't even really actually read what he says, right? We kind of like Jesus when we like Mr. Rogers or we like our grandparents. They're in a distance. They're nice. They're cuddly. And then when they show up, they give us $5 in a, in a card. And that's great, right? Who doesn't want that, right? That's kind of how we think of Jesus. But if you actually start reading what this guy says, it's about as radical and countercultural as you get. And there's nothing about it that's comforting. Because all he says is, what? lay down your life. Give everything you have away. Because that's how you understand the kingdom of heaven, right? And so however we understand uh, Jesus and however we understand this idea of possessions and our finances, what you have to understand is God understands the human heart. He created it. And he knows that the heart can be this, this organism, this, this, this organ of consumption. 
we just want, right? And, and uh, it was, um, I can't remember what uh, writer I was reading, and he said that, you know, uh, he was talking about discipleship, and he said that we have been discipled to be consumers. And that phrase just really, it just like leapt out of the page, page and slime, like a pop-up kind of, you know, kind of thing. It's like, oh my goodness, we have been discipled to be consumers. That's absolutely true. The only consistent thing that we can, be, we can talk about our culture is teaching us to become is where to spend our money. That's really all they care about. Oh, sure, have your politics, have whatever you want, but just make sure you spend your money. Right? I love how these, or these, these corporations are trying to talk about you know, philanthropy and all that, but really what they really want is, is lots of money. And, but these are the ones that are telling us how we should you know, live our lives and all that. It's like, wait, what? We have been discipled to be consumers. We have been discipled just to kind of live beyond our means. It's like, wow. I, I, and, 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 and their message is way more effective than the church's. Because the church shouldn't be living this way, but yet... We absolutely are. What you refuse to give to God will limit, define your growth with him. What we give away cannot control us. And we're going to look at this more next week in next week's teaching. But I just want you to understand something. What you give away, what you're able to release to God has no control over you. One of the things uh, when you study addictions and you study the cycle of addictions and one of the things that they do, they kind of test somebody to see if you're an addict in a certain area. Guess what? Is the ability to kind of give it up. Are you able to stop this behavior, consuming this thing? Are you able to stop? And if you are able to stop, well, it's not really much of an addiction because if you can stop it for a prolonged period of time and not just for a day, right? Like, I mean, we're, ta- we're talking like months. Like if you're able to say, you know what? I don't need to do this. I don't need to drink this. I don't need to watch this. I don't need to, you know, spend this. I can, I can go without. Well, that's one of the precursors towards addictions, right? And so what we have to understand, when God talks about our time, talents, and treasures, our whole beings of what we are, right? What he's really saying to us is that what you release to him has no control over you in your life, right? It's this concept we talk about a little bit at UCC, but tight-fisted, right? Right? If God has to come and pry your fingers open to get the thing you want, right? Like, oftentimes we say to God, God, here, take this stuff. And, and back here, we're holding something we really don't want to give to God. God, take the good stuff. Take the stuff when I'm nice. Take the stuff when I'm holding it open for somebody. Take this stuff here. And God's like, yeah, I'd actually prefer to talk about this stuff. The stuff that you're trying to hide from me. The stuff that you don't want to talk about. The stuff that you prefer not to have a conversation about. This is the stuff that I'd really like to have a conversation with you about. Because it's this stuff here that limits your relationship with me, not this stuff. Whatever we choose to withhold from God will define, will limit our growth with him. Gordon MacDonald, and you've heard me mention before, he looked at the early church and he says this, there was no separateness between Christ followers in this early church. The rich and the poor came together, and there was an overflow of sharing, so much so that it seemed as if the fellowship engaged in share and share alike. There is a deep principle at work here. Profound conversion of the heart produces a natural generosity. The power of Christ unbinds the selfish heart. It generates a love and compassion between people that was so intense that no one could hold on to anything extra when someone else appeared to be in need. 
wrap your little minds around that for a second. And I don't mean little in a pejorative sense because mine's little as well too. But just wrap your mind around that. Then early Christians, you have slaves and slave owners. You have people who are absolutely impoverished with, with, with what they possess and people who are wealthy. How could these people find commonality together? Because if I've learned anything about churches and demographics and studies, we separate along these lines. We separate along the financial lines. We separate along the uh, socioeconomic lines. How could these people come together? There's a letter from the first century that talks about Christianity. It's by a guy named Marcianus Aristides. It's called Apology. An apology is not like, I'm sorry, which seems like a very Canadian thing to do, right? Apology is more about the defense of faith. And this is what he says about the early church. Whenever one of their number who was poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, contributes to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or inflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity, and if possible, to redeem him, that they set him free. If, there's, if, if there is among, any, among them any that is poor and needy, and they have no spare food, they fast for two or three days in order to have food which they can supply to the needy one. Imagine going to work. And it's lunchtime, and your coworker says to you, or your, your, your friend who says to you, how come you're not eating? Well, my church, well, actually, you all decide not to eat because there's a family who can't afford food, and we're all kind of on a tight budget. So we're going to gather 